On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the sewer gate, sewage gate, whatever you want to call it, the controversy that is still brewing, still percolating down around city council. A lot of people still upset. But we're going to talk to someone who has been in the seat of the councillors, of the mayor. Is the criticism fair from the perspective of someone who has sat where they have sat? Larry DeAnne will join us and talk about that one. We're going to be chatting about debt. There's a new survey out that says a particular generation is okay with debt, is very comfortable with debt. They've been conditioned to think that debt is okay. Is that a good thing to be okay with it? First of all, I'll let you guess which generation it is. And second, we'll answer the question when you stick around. And we're going to be talking about high school sports, not who won, not who lost. The changing face of high school sports and some of the challenges and problems that are coming along with the way high school sports have changed since you went to school. And believe me, they have changed since you went to school. All that coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Earlier today, if you were listening to 900 CHML, you might have heard an interview Bill Kelly did with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about sewer gate or sewage gate or gate gate or whatever you want to call it. Everyone's got their own name for it right now. And reactions after that to that interview have been mixed at best. Lots of people are saying that the mayor didn't really help his cause with his responses. I'll leave that for you to decide. If you missed the interview, 900CHML.com, go to shows, go to Bill Kelly's show. You can listen to the whole thing right there. You can make your own judgment. Don't leave it to me to tell you whether or not the mayor answered in a satisfactory way. You decide. Now, that said, I'm not entirely sure what the mayor could say at this point that would make this whole situation look better, but... Here's the thing. As we've talked about on this show for a couple days now, I can't remember a time that a council in the city of Hamilton has been under the kind of withering criticism that it has been facing this week and into last. I mean, it is unrelenting. It is anger at keeping this story hidden from the public, voting to keep it hidden from the public. And there's the next step came today. We heard that uh, there was a notice that they were supposed to put up, the city was supposed to put up warning of this. Uh, the city was supposed to put it in a conspicuous place. It was posted in the staff-only control room of the Woodward Sewage Treatment Plant. I don't know if that counts as conspicuous, but it again goes to the questions about how has council really been doing here? Are we being too hard on them or are we being cr- rightly critical? of them? I thought the perfect person to turn to would be someone who sat in those seats as a councillor, as a mayor, his name is Larry Deany. He joins us now. Mr. Former Mayor, thanks for doing this today. Scott, my pleasure. I, when, I, when I called you earlier today, I said, these are the days I'm guessing that you're happy you're no longer sitting in that mayor's chair. And my response essentially was that, yes, nobody likes to see challenges such as these. But, but on the other hand, there is, there is something about trying to meet a challenge and, um, and uh, dealing with it well. This situation, uh, I'm willing to believe that there are some practical reasons behind what council has done. I know they talked to lawyers and there were those kind of things, but it appears on the face, Larry, totally politically tone deaf and completely incongruous with the, the vows of transparency, especially that followed the Fuhrer over the Red Hill Creek Expressway situation. Indeed. So, so let me start by saying that, that this doesn't seem to be our finest hour 
and some people would say, um, you know, at the very least, it doesn't seem to be like our finest hour, and perhaps um, it's, it's um, it, uh, you know, one can be even more damning than that. So having said that, though, and I'll tell you why I feel that way, but having said that, I'm not one, and perhaps because I've been in the chair and I know all the pressures that you feel that come at you, all the complexities that need to be sorted out, um, and, um, and uh, you know, people feel uh, sometimes overwhelmed by, by what, what to do and what's the right thing to do. Um, and so it, it's not as easy as it looks. On the other hand, um, they received a report that essentially said, look, um, this is what happened. Here's we've stopped it. We stopped it some time ago. Um, and and be careful of what you say, because uh, there are going to be financial consequences uh, if we say the wrong thing or if we communicate this prematurely or whatever the legal advice was. Right. So I'm telling you, I want my counsel to look after our financial health as well. I want my counsel to understand that if there's a financial penalty that's exacerbated by doing or saying the wrong thing, I don't want them to do that. I want them to consider the dollars that are spent as sacred dollars that need to be spent wisely. And if you can minimize cost, that's all to the good. Having said that, though, having given them credit for... Um, Doing, you know, the, the, the prudent thing according to the legal, um, the legal, uh, advice that they received. Having said that, it's been over a year or nearly a year now since this story came out. So where's the communications plan? You know, my shock when I first read this on Wednesday last online was that it took a year for somebody to leak it. Uh, my goodness, I would have thought, and people around that horseshoe are experienced enough to know, that that information was going to get out. So rather than be caught fat, flat-footed, given that it's going to go out, given that you've got an order from the province saying you've got to inform the community, then what's my communications plan? How am I going to get this information out in an orderly way to minimize the financial penalty if there is one? and yet give people some information uh, on what happened, what the impact of what happened is, how we fixed it, and how we're going to make sure that it's not going to happen again. Here's your communications plan, and then you implement the plan. Now they're playing catch-up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about the sewer spill situation, the follow-up to it, particularly how City Hall, City Council, and the mayor have been covering this and handling this. Thought it was time to bring in someone who sat in that seat before, which is why Larry Deany returns to join us. He, former mayor, of course, uh, knows what it's like to sit in that office, but also can look at this now from a bit of a dispassionate distance, having been out of there for a while. And Larry, just before the break, you're saying, you know, this we want to give them a little bit of slack in some ways because we understand what some of the complications are and the challenges and the, all those kind of things. And I would have, and I heard the mayor today say, no, we weren't covering this up. We weren't hiding this. And okay. But when I then read and hear Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, say, but even Burlington, our neighbor, wasn't told, and the RBG wasn't told. And these are places that you would think, okay, 
We can turn to Burlington and say, look, we can't go public with this yet because here are the reasons, but we have to let you know. When they're not told, that's when my real doubts come in about whether we were ever going to find out about this. And so, you know, that's why I, I said that there needed to be a communications plan that would have looked after all of that. Who are the stakeholders? Uh, RBG, the, the city of Burlington, uh, the, the, the public in general. What's the message and how are we going to deliver that message? Uh, and so that wasn't done. And I, I fault them for that. That and, and by the way, staff needs to step up and, uh, and come up with some of that as well. Council obviously needs to approve it and need to give the direction, but it needs to be uh, implemented uh, with staff uh, assistance as well. Here's why I don't think that, uh, that, that their motivation um, is nefarious, because um, I don't think council, I mean, people try to hide something when they're guilty of having done something. Uh, council didn't cause this to happen. Uh, they um, are motivated by whatever advice they receive to minimize financial cost. And as taxpayers, we should appreciate that. But the other side of it, and this is the political side, that says, look, this is important information to get out. And I didn't hear the interview on radio this morning, but I did read the interview online that he gave to you, to the, to the spectator. Uh, and the most important thing that the mayor said in that interview with the spec is that there is no lasting environmental impact. How do we know? And that's, well, he said that. Now that's the question. Prove it to us, right? And this is where we need to, we need to dig a little deeper and, and find out if, if indeed that's, that's the fact. But I'm reassured, at least with the words, and let's verify now if the words are accurate. Uh, I don't think he tried to mislead us on that, but let's verify it because we're living in a very skeptical time right now. And we're questioning their motivation. Larry, these, these people, though, on council, uh, and I, again, I don't want to be taking unnecessary shots, but these are, there's a lot of people on council who are politically savvy, and you've got to know that at some point this information is going to come out. And after the Red Hill Creek thing, which, again, was a staff report, as I understand it, unless we find something out differently, was a staff report they didn't know about. So it's not, that blame is not entirely on them. But right. after that... They talked about transparency. And they t- Surely someone in these meetings with the lawyer said, okay, we can't give everything, but we've got to give something because if this thing leaks out, we're screwed. Well, absolutely. And that's why, again, I come back to, um, to the point that I made right at the beginning. Heed the lawyer's advice because we want them to be stewards of our financial health as well as our environmental health. But this is an incident that's a major incident that's happened. I mean, 24 billion liters is a lot and it's happened, how are we going to handle how this is rolled out, how this is communicated to stakeholders and beyond? And that's what should have been, you know, when they decided to take the vote to, to, to be prudent about um, saying something right off the bat, the next question should have been, okay, that's fine, let's do that. But how are we then going to communicate the important things that we have to communicate? How are we going to make sure that we adhere to the provincial policy about even posting whatever sign needed to be posted that they posted uh, at the uh, wastewater treatment plant that nobody sees other than uh, people who work there. So, I mean, all of these things should have been thought through. And you're right, there are people around that horseshoe. Not all of them were new in January. There are people there with decades of experience who should have known that this was going to go out and we'd better get ahead of this by having a good communications plan 
that does two things, minimizes the financial cost and impact and increases the communication to the community. And shows the transparency that we've been promising. Just before we let you go, uh, this is the issue, ultimately, to me, that comes out of this. And we've heard a lot in the last few days about people trusting municipal government now and the lack of trust or the loss of trust they have. How do you, when you're a council that seems to have had such a blow against you in the trust department from the public, how do you regain that? Well, they're going to have to dig themselves out of that hole, and the best way of doing that is by being transparent and being forthright, and that's important. But put this in perspective, though, right? Um, uh, People have been justly upset because they don't know what the implications of this are, and we need to get that out as well, just to reassure people. There are people who have been angry at council for different reasons who are now using this for their own motives, Even the editor-in-chief of your newspaper took the opportunity to use this to sell subscriptions. I didn't think that was smart either, quite quite frankly. So in the context of a lot of people doing things for their own interests, council needs to do the right thing. Former Mayor Larry DeAnne, always appreciate your time. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. All right. Take care. It's, uh, it is not going away. I can tell you that. I, I, I say I listened to the mayor's interview this morning. Did not think that was going to make it go away. And we've got a council meeting tomorrow. Guaranteed it's going to be front and center. We'll keep talking about it as long as there's stuff to talk about. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The date may have slid by your notice yesterday. Don't know if you were on top of this one. But yesterday marked one month until Christmas. Yep. We are now in the home stretch in peak prime buying season shopping is at a fever pitch this is the time of year when if you go to lime ridge mall and you look for a parking spot be prepared to fist fight for one or just idle your car for an hour waiting for a spot to open up i'm just telling you be ready it is full combat shopping season right now which also means blowing your budget in all likelihood. We all set out at the beginning of the Christmas season to say, okay, here's how much I'm going to spend. And unless you have great discipline, you will probably fly by that because you always forget someone or you find something else that someone deserves. And so you go, okay, I'll spend a little more. We've all been down this road. So anyway, I'm reading a piece on holiday spending this week, which was fascinating because we all blow our budget. We understand that. But there is one group, apparently that seems entirely comfortable with this idea. Many age groups, many generations are like, oh, I'm going to blow the budget, but I don't feel good about it. I feel nervous about spending that much. But it seems that millennials, I know it's the M word, those born 1981 to 96 roughly, are far more comfortable building debt, going into debt to buy presents. This is what this survey found. Uh, Not just presents either. In general, living in debt, assuming debt, taking on debt. The concept of debt apparently doesn't bother them like it does other generations. Here's a quote from a professor who's been studying this. It's a way of life and it's been normalized for them, this professor said. Question is, is this just a way of life? Is this healthy? Is this something that we should be more okay with the rest of us Or are we looking at this saying, no, no, this is probably not the best way to do things. Uh, Don Fox is the co-host of Planning Your Financial Future Saturday mornings from 8 to 9 here on 900 CHML. Uh, He joins us now. Don, thanks for doing this today. Hey, no problem, Scott. So when I say, is this healthy, is this a good thing? I bet I know your answer to that one. (laughs) 
what, you're talking to a financial planner here, and absolutely it's not healthy. Um, interesting, you're absolutely right, though. It is learned behavior, and it often happens right at the dinner table. What so do you mean by that? Your parents have said or what your grandparents have said, and, and we've actually you know, studied people. And I know in the U.S. there's like four generations of welfare recipients because they're, they just feel it's normal to be in welfare. And I'm feeling the same thing about debt here in Canada. Our debt ratio is one of the highest ever. In fact, we're saving less money than we ever have. It's absolutely incredible. And um, a recent study just showed that less than $1,000 is being saved per year right now. But if it's happening around the dinner table, and it's a fascinating topic that you've got generations of people who are sitting and they learn from each other, is So let's say that this study is true and millennials are more comfortable with it. Does that mean that the others, the Generation X and the baby boomers and whatever else, they also are going it out there just not comfortable with it? Yeah, you know, as, as you get older, you have you know, less debt just because you've been around longer, generally speaking. So you bought your house, you're painting it down, um, you, you've lived, you've, you may have gone into debt earlier in your life and you realize the pain wasn't worth it, you've paid it off. So that advice should be passed along but I, i've been doing this for 34 years and it's always been the younger people are generally more in debt than the older people so it's not just the and you know we, we use the millennial term all the time and sometimes i feel badly because i feel like every study seems to be about millennials now and saying how stupid they are which i i don't believe is true but is it just then because they are younger that they're naturally going to be more inclined to take on debt there's that part of it no question and there's also the other part is I think it's a little more um, social pressure than ever right now. So, you know, the Instagram posts you make, whether it's look what I've, look at the trip I'm on or, or look at the mm. thing I, you know, the wedding I'm just having or what, you know, the new purchase I just made. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and this is a generation as well, probably I would guess more than any other generation in history that has spent with, now that everybody has smartphones and is attached and online 24 hours a day, you, there's almost no time you're not being bombarded either by an ad or by what you just said, someone's Facebook showing something great they're doing, whatever. The, the pressures to buy something are almost nonstop. Um, for, yeah, absolutely, Scott. And you know, I just talked to my millennial daughter, who's uh, 29, and, and, and her friend went to a wedding. Now, you know, these are 28-year-olds, and they put the wedding on a credit card. They couldn't really afford this wedding. And I looked at, you know, our generation, we would have never even considered, you know, paying 26% interest on having a, a, a very luxurious wedding. We would dumb it down or, or, you know, get the price well down, maybe have it at a legion or something perhaps way, way less uh, luxurious. But, uh, we, we tried to stay more within our means, but now it's like, wow, I can't have my friends go to this particular event. You know, they're going to post it that it was great or they're going to post it that it was lovely. But so are they doing it from your experience? Are they doing it and being, this story is saying they are comfortable with the idea. I can understand that some people may put something on their credit card but then grit their teeth and bite their fingernails going, oh man, I got to deal with this now. Or is there in fact a comfort level saying, well, you know what? Everybody does it. I'll deal with it. I'll pay it off when I can pay it off. <laughs> actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. You said everybody's doing it. Um, looking at people that are actually in debt, two thirds of indebted Canadians assume everybody else is in debt. <laughs> so it's actually like, oh, well, everybody's in debt. I'm always be in debt too. It's no big deal. 
although it's almost a rationalization. Yeah, I remember that from high school. As long as someone else got a lower mark than me on a test, I was okay with it. <laughs> yeah, okay, as long as I'm not the bottom. He got, look, he got only a 50, so I, my 56 is fantastic by comparison. <laughs> you uh, always wanted to compare against the lower as long as, as long as you're not the, the outlier on the b- bottom end or on the wrong end, it's, you know, it's not so bad. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Don Fox, co-host of Planning Your Financial Future, which is on this station Saturday mornings from 8 till 9, about this survey that was done going into the Christmas season of millennials and shopping. Well, it was of all age groups, but it was millennials that stood out because they, according to this survey, are by far the generation, the group that is most comfortable overspending, going into debt, assuming debt to get all your goods and treats and packages and parcels and everything paid for. And Don, I want to broaden this a little bit because I think this speaks to something that is bigger, obviously, than just Christmas uh, and Christmas shopping. We just have come through an election and an election before that where our prime minister, who is by definition not a millennial, but in many ways kind of is, um, made it a staple of his platform that we were going to have debt spending, that we were going to spend more than we make, more than we bring in, because we have things we need. And that, to me, resonates with a lot of people in that age group. And also, if the government's doing it, suggests, you know what, it can't be all that bad. I could not agree with you more, Scott. Um, I actually had that exact conversation I'm knowing I was going to do the show with my millennial daughter, and uh, she said the same thing. Absolutely. It's almost like it's okay to be in debt. Uh, we're going to go into more debt for the next number of years and really no end in sight, but it's okay. And I really disagree with that kind of thinking because, you know, it does trickle down to the average citizen. Well, uh, if you're, uh, I don't know who learns from government behavior. I, I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad <laughs> idea. But if we do look at it and say, look, the government can go into debt, the government can pay for all this stuff. And there seems, Don, the, the thing about this is I don't think many of us, including myself, and I'm not a millennial, but have really seen any cause for alarm in this because we've never, we sort of buy this stuff and then never have to pay it off. It's always pushed down the road, pushed down the road. We've never had to pay the piper for what we've bought. So why should I be concerned? Yeah. And that's the exact opposite because when we do go in debt, we do have to pay the piper. We unfortunately can't just print money down in the basement and, uh, and pay off uh, and just make and create more debt and issue bonds and get into more debt. So as consumers, we do have to pay the piper and it's actually interesting. It's one of the number one um, reasons of marriage separation. It's one of the most, one of the number one stresses out there. And in fact, 84% of all indebted Canadians say it's their number one key goal is to get out of debt. So, as much as you know, uh, there is that trickle down of the government's um, spending. And and I and again, I I like to kind of, you know, look at deficit spending in bad times when we knew need it rather than just as a normal way of doing business. However, us, us consumers don't have that luxury. Well, no, but we all have debt. We all have some, whether it's a mortgage or a student loan or a car loan. I mean, there's, there is a level of debt that I think most Canadians say, okay, that's a, that's a necessary must have to live in a modern society kind of thing. We, I think the difference is that many of us want to get that paid off as fast as we can because we're not comfortable with it. Absolutely. And, and then you look at, well, if I'm going to have this debt, say, you know, the housing prices have definitely outpaced the income levels. So therefore, I have to take on more debt. 
but then on the same token, maybe you don't go on as lavish a vacation. Maybe instead of flying to Florida, you drive to Florida with both kids in the car and you stay at, you know, maybe your parents' place in Florida instead of uh, Disney World. Um, you know, all these decisions make a big difference. In fact, just the day-to-day decisions of buying a, a, a coffee at Starbucks is yeah. another decision. And uh, you look at all the different ways you can save money. In fact, you can Google 40 ways you can save money. You will find all sorts of ways that you can get more money in your bank account every month. What I really find, I don't know if the word is troubling, interesting, fascinating about this, I think there's a cycle and it ties the personal debt comfort level with the government thing with everything else. And that is, it seems to me that if we have a government that has said we can overspend, we can be comfortable with this, this is normal, we create a sense, as you said, it's been normalized, which leads to, I would think it's a cycle because now we're okay with it, Mm -hmm. which invariably, inevitably to me means we're going to do more of this down the road until, I don't know what the until is, until something (laughs) happens that this thing doesn't work anymore. Well, didn't you find it weird um, four years ago when Trudeau was going for election, says we are going to go into deficit. But he did say that the second year was going to be um, you know, back to par again. But then he came back and said, no, we'll have deficits for the next four years. It was so odd compared to the Harper years saying we are going to have a balanced budget. And it was like, on, honestly, a total turn in your brain. And it took a while, but I agree with you, Scott, that I think a lot of people think, oh, okay, debt's okay then. But it spoke to two different generations, which I think this survey is showing, that, that those words spoke to a younger generation, and Trudeau did very well with younger voters. Oh, he did fantastic with younger voters. I'm sure uh, that was a large part of his voting um, reason he got in, for that matter. That and probably the marijuana change, but anyway. No, but it, like again, I, I, I mean, you're a financial planner. You see these people, you see people who either are in good shape or bad shape, and it doesn't matter what age they are. I mean, there are millennials who are in terrific financial shape who are saving well for themselves, uh, and there are older people who are in dire financial straits. It's not exclusively people carved up by their generations, but boy, as I say, it does seem to me that we are heading towards a cycle where if we do normalize this, that we put ourselves in a position where we suddenly find problems and didn't even see it coming down the path. Well, we're, we're definitely in different cycles. And eventually, they realize they have huge constraints. And they realize that they're paying 26% interest on a credit card and they can barely afford it. Um, they may have to take in a tenant. They may have to get a side job. And they realize it's just not worth it. So there is, you know, eventually you have to pay the piper as a consumer. So you do change. But it's just, uh, it's just 84% of people say you should have a financial planner. And that could lead towards a better uh, plan in terms of not only how to get a debt, but on the other side, how do you save for retirement? How do you pay off your house quicker? How do you get your kids to university? So it's, it's a double-edged sword, debt and savings. And you've got to work through both of those. You can hear more about this from Don, uh, Saturday mornings, 8 till 9, 900 CHML, planning your financial future. Don, I know you were uh, struggling with the voice today. Really appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. No, any problem, anytime, Scott, and hopefully next time I'll have the full voice going again. <laughs> there we go. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So let me go back to this story about, about high school sports, because I think m- many people, maybe most, but certainly many people listening played on a team in high school, it didn't matter the sport you played. You found it was basketball or it was tennis or it was hockey or it was football or it was soccer or it was, I mean, whatever. You found something, most people, many people. And if you did, 
You might be surprised, as I have suddenly been reading this piece that's at thespec.com right now, you may be surprised to understand how much high school sports have changed over the years. And again, I'm not talking about a particular sport or the level of competition, although that certainly is up. I, I, I would have a hard time making teams now that I made pretty easily back then. But there are significant changes. I'm going to, we're going to concentrate today probably on two of those things. Maybe more, but probably on two of them. Uh, fundamental changes that I read about at thespec.com today in the first installment of my next guest three-part series called On the Sidelines. We're going to talk about cost and who's involved. But first, let me introduce the person who wrote this, the reporter who wrote this. Uh, you've heard her before. She's been on this show a number of times. We always love having her. Terry Pekoski from The Spectator. Terry, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's a terrific read. It's a terrific thing because here's, I may be giving away my age. We were talking about millennials last <laughs> hour. Um, high school sports seemed very simple, and I don't even mean like how you play. It just seemed like a pretty simple thing. You went to school, you played on a team. It was part of the experience. Almost everybody did it. It, it wasn't a complicated thing. We complicate everything, and heaven knows by reading this, we have complicated high school sports. Oh, for sure. And I, you know what, I think that was part of the key parts of the series is that this really has changed in a generation. So even when I was in high school, um, you know, I don't want to age myself too much, but 20 years You're younger than me, let's put it that way. (laughs) I'm a little younger than you, but not that much younger. But 20 years ago, um, I don't recall these sorts of fees. I might, you know, you might pay 30 or 40 bucks. Uh, well, let's start there. Let me jump in. Sorry, just to start there. Cause I didn't yeah. say what these things were. Um, there, when I went to school, when you went to school, I, I, I never paid that I know of to play on a basketball team or something. Now, if you go to high school and I'm learning this from your piece, cause I didn't know this, you're mm-hmm. paying for many sports to play high school sports. Yeah. I mean, I, I gave one example, I think in, in day one of the series about, Say you have a kid who plays football in the fall, hockey in the winter, and something like track and field in the spring. Um, you put those things together, and you could be paying, you know, six, seven hundred dollars for for a season, and that's just to play in high school. Um, and one of the other things with the series, and this is we're, we're getting there in in day two and three, most of the kids now that are playing high school sports aren't just playing sport in high school. So they're, you know, they're playing those three sports at school. They're also playing sports outside of school at an additional cost. So we're talking like, I mean, really like, you know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars a year for a lot of these kids, which ends up cutting a lot of students out. So let's go to the fees for a minute, because my big question when I read this is why this is because presumably teachers are coaching as part of their not part of their job they would argue that it's not part of their job but they're volunteering their time after school they're not being paid a a, a surcharge or something to coach they're doing it as yeah. by choice uh the equipment for most sports not hockey per se but for other sports the equipment is there the schools own the gyms the schools own the fields mm-hmm. what are we paying for i uh, you know what part of the problem is the funding model so there's no money actually earmarked from the province when it comes down to school boards. So high school sports are competing with other things like teacher salaries, uh, like, you know, just general school supplies, textbooks for dollars. Um, and when I talked to the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, so the local public school board, I found out that their entire athletics budget for all of the high schools on the board is about $300,000 a year. Um, and of that $300,000, only $3,000 goes to each school. 
And when you consider that each school might have, you know, 30 teams altogether, if you put boys and girls together in a, in a, in a year, that's about $100 a team that's actually being funded. So as you can imagine, I mean, the money for for those teams, for, you know, for transportation, for uniforms, for all of that stuff. Officials. It has to come from yeah. somewhere. And yeah. it's, it's being passed on to the kids. And, 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 I mean, to me, the one thing that jumped out immediately, and I hadn't even thought about transportation, but was paying for officials because th- those are the one, they are the one group in there that does get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know, by the way, did you know about these costs before you started working on the story? Did you know that was out there? I wasn't sure. I actually op- approached the series with a pretty open mind. I'd wanted for a very long time to do a survey of students, um, you know, in, in Hamilton and find out what was going on in high school sport locally. So one of the things that I, I was curious about was sports specialization, which I actually do tackle on day three of the series. I also wanted to know what the odds were of a kid who just, you know, wants to participate <laughs> are, you know, in terms of making a high school team these days. Like, can your average kid who's not playing sport outside of school show up at high school and say, I really want to try out for the basketball team or I really want to try out for, you know, even like the pickleball team. <laughs> and and what did you find? Um, not really. It's, it's, it's quite rare. So you'll see this. This is coming up and it will hit... The web first thing tomorrow morning is part two of the series, which looks at the crossover between competitive athletes and also recreational athletes and high school athletes. And I found that about three out of four high school athletes that responded to the survey, and there were, um, I got about 850 usable responses in all. So this isn't a small sample size. Three quarters of the student athletes also play competitive sports outside of school. Which creates a chicken and an egg. It creates a bit of a cycle, right? Because if you've got these people who are competing in rep sports, uh, who are trying to also get spots on high school teams, it becomes much more high level so that to get a spot on a high school team, you almost have to have played rep sports. You're not going to walk in as a brand new hockey player and suddenly compete with a bunch of people who have played AAA hockey and think you're going to suddenly make it. Exactly. And it's it's interesting to me because what kept coming up in conversations with educators was we have sort of these new sports like ultimate frisbee or pickleball, as I mentioned, or, um, you know, things like that, water polo maybe, that kids aren't necessarily playing those sports competitively outside of school. So they see that as an opportunity for your average kid to participate. Um, but what I found was the kids that are taking up the spots on those teams are the kids that are playing rep basketball, who, who are rep soccer, who are really good athletes, who are just really good athletes. So it's it's not like these new opportunities are, are opening up roster spots for your average kid to play. It's still the best players that are playing. They're just playing on less popular teams. You know, and and one of the things about school sports that I always found, and I think probably this is shared by a lot of people, probably by you, is, I said it off the top, it's your chance to, it's your piece of the school community to feel like a community, to be on a team. Mm -hmm. And if you have no chance because you don't play a rep sport, you are basically boxed out of that community. And I know that, you know, schools would say, well, you know, we can't turn away people who have played AAA hockey or rep basketball or something, because they have to feel like they're part of the school community. But 
by letting them play, I mean, it's complicated, but by letting them play, you're, as I say, blocking people who otherwise, those people already have a community with their club team. Now you're mm-hmm. taking that opportunity away from the kids who aren't necessarily playing rep sports. Oh, for sure. And it's not just a sense of community. Uh, one of the things I talk about in part one of the series that you can find online now on thespec.com is that participation in high school sports is connected to all sorts of positive developmental outcomes. So everything from, you know, higher grades to higher graduation rates to higher incomes later in life. Um, so it's not just lost opportunities, you know, in terms of this, this social experience and this being part of a team. It's all of that other stuff, too, that kids are missing out on essentially for reasons that have nothing to do with interest <laughs> and, <laughs> or, and, or yeah, talent. And, I mean, in, in some cases, it, it could just be a financial thing. It could be other barriers like... You know, if you can't get a ride home from school at night and you, you, you're practicing after after class and you miss the bus, I mean, that, that could be enough of a barrier to keep you out. And I agree wholeheartedly with your conclusion, whether it's yours or other people's, about the, the benefits of playing sports, whether it's high school or, I mean, I really believe wholeheartedly that there are real benefits to playing on a team, to being part of sports beyond just the physical fitness Mm-hmm. But again, uh, it seems like we've, in a lot of ways, whittled down who the people are who can do this by half because you now have to be one of those those folks. And it almost sounds now like high school sports have become an extension of rep sports. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of exactly what um, uh, most of the experts that I interviewed for the series said. <laughs> it really is. You, you sort of have these things go hand in hand now. Um which is unfortunate because, again, just a generation ago, I, I don't think this was the case. There were, there were a lot more opportunities for kids to play. And even if you go back maybe 40 years, high school was the place where kids were introduced to sports. Ah, uh, Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, and now, I mean, they, they've been playing sometimes competitively since they were five or six years old. So, the, you know, there's almost 10 years of that sort of training by the time they get to high school. Um, and at that point, they're so far ahead of those other kids who don't have that, uh, sort of out of school, um, sport background that there's just no way of making up that gap. You're never going to, I don't think, I don't think any school is going to make a proclamation that if you play a rep sport, you cannot play on the school team. That said, how much would it change, if at all, do you think, and I I don't know if you've written this, but how much would it change? Right now, students, especially if you're coming out of grade nine, can choose your high school, and a lot of students will go, they'll be on a rep team, and they'll want to go play with their friends, so they'll all choose a school together. How much would it change if you had to attend the school that is in your catchment area, so you don't get to choose where you want to play? If you want to play, you go to the school and you play there. Uh, you know what? It's it's tough to say. Um, that is one of the things that I was hoping to look at through the series. One of the one of the things that I gathered were postal codes, so I could see where kids were coming from and whether they were going to school within their own catchment areas and playing sports at, you know, the schools that they are are supposed to be going to. Technically, um, it could make a difference, but I would probably argue that almost every school is so flooded with um, with rep and even recreational sort of out-of-school athletes, it wouldn't make a, a ton of difference. Um, you might avoid some of these sort of superpower-type schools uh, that you see winning championships year after year after year. But um, 
I don't know that it would make a huge difference because I think this is happening sort of all over the place. Yeah, and I think you're probably right. I think there are schools where this certainly would be impactful because if suddenly you have a bunch of five or six students who come, they all know each other, they've played rep sports, they want to play together, and now you've got five or six or seven kids that come in, same age group, same cohort, same sport, and I am an average player living in that catchment area, what chance do I have of making that team? I mean, zero. Yeah, and it's interesting. You'll see in my story tomorrow, um, I talked about the senior girls basketball team at Westdale, which I went to talk to, and every single girl on that team plays rep basketball outside of school. One of the situations they ran into this year at the start of the season, they actually had empty roster spots. So you had kids not trying out for that team, even though there were empty spots. Um, I don't know why, if it was, it's just, you think you can't make the team, so you don't bother trying out. Uh, just because all these girls have been playing together for so long and are so good. Um, so that, you know, it creates a whole other situation where, <laughs> you know, kids are, are not even trying out. And that's one of the things that we asked um, students who were not playing sports at high school um, was for their rationale, you know, why they weren't playing. And a good number of them actually said that was the reason. You mentioned a moment ago about people trying a sport, and we'll call it sampling, this essentially, in most cases, eliminates the possibility of someone who hasn't played a sport before saying, I'm going to try this, and who knows, I may love it, I may be great at it. I mean, I know this is a long time ago now, but I remember talking to Russ Jackson, the greatest Canadian quarterback of all time, who had never played rep football and went to Westdale and got into the sport and that sample allowed him to go on and have the career he did. That that would be impossible today to just try it and then go on and have that kind of career. I would suggest yes, unless you are just a very, very gifted natural athlete who can come in and sort of pick it up and, and who has training in other sports that sort of allows them to succeed at a new sport at that age. Otherwise, I think this is the type of thing where if you're not doing it from a, you know, a pretty young age, um, you're going to you get cut out pretty quickly. I don't know if you asked this question or if you've looked into this, but do we know, do we have any idea if this happens in other extracurricular areas? Are we seeing in, for example, in school plays in drama club that all the people who are getting the leads are people who are in drama groups outside of school or singing groups or choirs or bands or whatever? Do we know if it extends to that kind of thing? Uh, I don't, I I can't back that up with any data, but I certainly... um, heard from a lot of people in the course of researching this series that anecdotally you're seeing the same problems in in things like drama and and the arts um so i can't i can't point to any specific numbers but i mean it's the the funding situation is the same right A, a lot of these programs are fighting um for money from you know other other funding needs in these school boards and kids are having to sort of pay the difference and um, that's that's one thing, actually, I'm hoping that the spectator will look into further as maybe a follow-up to this series is, is how these types of situations are reflected maybe in the arts and music as well. Maybe I missed it, uh, or maybe it's coming up in, in uh, edition two or three of this story, which will be out in the next couple of days, but I didn't get a sense that there was a huge sense of urgency that any of this needs to be fixed. Am I missing something? Um, not really. I think one of the difficult things with this is that, first of all, who's who's to blame? 
and and how do you really go about fixing it like to some people this really does seem like a bit of an intractable problem unless you're going to totally overhaul the way that funding uh decisions are made at a provincial level and you're gonna have you're gonna say you know we're going to commit a lot more money to sport um, and not just at school, but within communities, which privatization of sort of recreational and, and competitive sport within communities has played a huge role in this as well. So uh, you wrote a great piece a few, um, a few weeks ago about gym fees and how those were affecting um, competitive sports teams in the city. So you see that those fees are rising, and as those fees rise, you know, more and more kids are cut out. Um, and this stuff is all connected. So it's hard to, it's one of those situations, unfortunately, I think, that's kind of hard to pin the blame on on one group of people or one, you know, organization or a government. Um, there's a lot of different moving parts here and I think a lot of things would have to change in order to improve this situation. Well, and it didn't happen overnight. That's the other thing is suddenly I think we've just sort of opened our eyes and this slow change is now fully blossomed in front of us. We go, holy cow, how did we get here? And how do we undo what got us here? For sure, for sure. And if people tune into part three of the series, which is it's going to drop online on Thursday and Saturday in the newspaper, I do offer some... Um, recommendations, I guess you would say, or, or just five ideas for things that could be done that would help the situation. And some of those are pretty simple, um, even as stop gaps, something like creating an equipment bank for, you know, schools in the area where kids could maybe get free or low cost equipment would just help to offset some of those costs. It's uh, it's a great series. Uh, first part is up at thespec.com right now on the sidelines. Uh, this is Terry Pekoski who's been talking. Give it a read. It is well worth your time. If you were in high school 15 to 20 years ago, let's say, because it's probably been that period of time that's been changing, you will be shocked to find out how high school sports has changed since you left school. It's not like it used to be. And there are now challenges and I think it's not a stretch to say problems that are out there that were never anticipated, but suddenly are now sitting in front of us. Uh, Terry, appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks. Scott, thanks for having me. Go look it up. at uh, Not right now, after we're done, but at thespec.com. It is well, well, well worth your time. There's a three parts, two more coming up over the next two days. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.